We're starting a new series, mini-series, six weeks, the book of Proverbs. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn to chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 9. And uh, we, we will also have the text on the screen if you happen to forget your Bible uh, this morning. Cut to the chase, Proverbs is wisdom. Proverbs is from the wisest man who ever lived, according to God's declaration, um, offering wisdom. We get to look at the source of wisdom here today. Um, but I, wa- I wanted to start with this. L- listen to how Chuck Swindoll um, kind of paraphrases an introduction to the book of Proverbs. He says, Proverbs contains some of the most applicable nuggets of truth in all of the Bible. Most of the Proverbs are pithy statements brimming over with imagery from the real world. This approach allows us to see very clearly how any particular proverb might be applied to any number of everyday situations we encounter, from getting out of bed in the morning to building a strong foundation in our relationships with others. Proverbs reminds us that God concerns himself not just with the big cataclysmic events of life, but even those mundane, invisible moments in our lives as well. That's where this six weeks will go. Wisdom, God's wisdom, through a lens of, of a relationship with him, through Christ, and how it applies to, to everyday matters. Today is really just a discussion of wisdom. I'm going to sell you on something, all right? Wisdom is good. You should get wisdom. That's pretty much the point of, of chapter 9. Uh, you're probably familiar. Uh, when I was young, someone told me as a young man, just read a proverb a day. You'll be a smarter guy. So I spent some time reading Proverbs. You've heard this verse before, chapter 3, verse 5. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? We all know those things. And that kind of makes, makes moments in our Bibles, in our notes, in our, in our journals. It's a very important statement. And here's, here's why it's important. Because left on our own, we are inclined to do what is right in our own eyes. Now, if you remember Judges 17, this is, this is a statement, really, that God says about Israel at the time. There was no king, and everyone did whatever they thought was best, right? Well, just so you know, let's be fair to Israel. That's just not an accusation against that people a long time ago. That reality of doing whatever you want to do because it feels right is the human heart, Yes? It's what we deal with. So just to say, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding goes absolutely against everything you're wired to do. I want to feel good. I want to be right. I want to be wise. And so therein lies the tension between just what seems like an obvious discussion about wisdom and all of the competitive voices in it. Um, This description of, of wrestling with wisdom and failing at living in wisdom isn't just an accusation that someone can make about the world. It's true of the church from time to time, right? So we are gonna spend some time in this wonderful discussion asking God to say to do a work in our hearts to love wisdom and, and to run from folly, which is the point of chapter nine. Before we do, let's, let's really ask the Spirit of God to take these next six weeks and shape our heart towards the heart of God, this heart of wisdom. Can we pray together? Lord God, would you do a work in our lives and our hearts with this short uh, look at wisdom and the very practical ways in which it applies? Um, Lord, we, we declare in our right mind our absolute dependency upon you. There is no other truth but your truth. So God, in spite of all the other narratives kind of racing for space in our minds and our hearts, I pray, God, that we would love yours 
exclusively and only. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you some of the structure of Proverbs, just so if you're one of those people who like to know kind of where this fits in the whole theme of Scripture, just so you know. Solomon is described as writing most of Proverbs. There's a couple other writers mentioned in chapter 30 and 31 and chapter 24. There's a group of guys called the Men of the Wise. There's a guy named Lemuel. There's a guy named Agar that's also attributed to that. But let's just give them those three chapters. That leaves you with like 28 chapters that Solomon writes. And it makes sense because you remember Solomon's short story, Son of David. He was a young man trying to lead the people of Israel as king and he realized he had no resource to lead the people. And so he prayed. God said, ask what you want. He said, all right, I don't know what I'm doing. So give me discernment. Give me wisdom. God says, says you ask for that. You get that. In fact, I'm going to give you so much wisdom, no one will be wiser before you or since you. You're just going to be the wisest guy who ever lived. In fact, kind of a commentary on his wisdom, when the king, queen of Sheba heard about him, she had to come look for herself. And when she shows up, the text even in the scriptures says she left her experience with Solomon breathless because of his wisdom. That's what happens to me every time I talk to my wife. She leaves breathless don't tell her I told you that. Anyway, so, so Solomon writes the majority of it. Because he's wise, it makes sense. Proverbs are very simply a collection of truths that are concisely and poetically put together in such a way that you and I can easily remember and recall what these truths say. They're meant to paint like a, or leave a mark in your mind. Like, I can't forget that. And that's why you'll see these analogies, this, this comparison. In fact, the writing here is poetry, po poetic parallelism, and it's just this contrast compare. Wisdom, folly. And they tell stories. Like in our chapter nine today, they're described as women, all right? And so this will probably leave a mental mark for us, and we'll remember what it says. So how do you study these scriptures? These are written really like this, like an old man's journal to a young man growing. It's father's words to a son. Like after all I've learned, after everywhere I've walked, boy, here's what you need to know. Don't forget it, it's always true. So that's how, it, that's how it's written. And just so we understand the key of Proverbs, the key of Proverbs aren't necessarily the particulars in which it addresses. It is the source in which you can be wise. It is this one statement we'll deal with today, and it's over and over again, the theme of, of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I can tell you something pragmatic that it mentions, but if you don't fear the Lord, you got no shot. You'll just bump around in this world. You'll, you'll consider, I mean, your own wisdom more important than God's wisdom if you don't fear the Lord. So in this chapter, we just uh, kind of land on this one simple truth. Wisdom is good. Go get wisdom, okay? Let's read chapter nine and we'll, we'll pick it apart. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of my wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man, reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to the wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman of folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. The bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You can tell just by a like high 20,000 view of chapter nine, it breaks down in three particular sections. There's a beginning, there's an end, and there's a middle. Three particular paragraphs. The first six verses describes the way of wisdom, the last six, the way of folly, and the middle really describe kind of sketches of the outcomes of choosing one or the other. So this is what a, a fool is like. This is what it's like for the wise, all right? But before we kind of pick apart the passage, let let me just give you the big idea. In this description from Solomon to us, he compares two ways, two houses, two women. In fact, it it kind of describes to us two invitations, two responses, and two outcomes to to this decision. And, And by the way, he's not just stating the obvious and saying, okay, here's folly and here's wisdom. You pick it. Options, that's not how he's presenting this. He's stating wisdom as such an obvious choice over folly, like he's imploring us, leave stupidity and come to wisdom. That's what he's trying to do. Not leave it to you, but try to pull you to one particular position. Now, why would he have to do that? How many people do you know who line up to be stupid? Like, he'll give you the option. Be, be dumb or be wise, and I choose to be stupid today. Nobody makes the conscious decision to choose folly. No, no one I know, at least, makes that decision. So why? why? Why does he have to ask us, implore us to choose wisdom? Why is it so difficult? I'll give you a couple reasons. One is that you and I were born with a brokenness. I've got a little granddaughter now. I don't see her very often, but on Friday I saw her, and I looked at her, and I said, she's done nothing wrong but she will. You know what I'm saying? All she needs is more dexterity, more verbal skills, and more will, and all that stuff she's born with called sinful nature is gonna express itself, right? You and I are born with, cut me some slack, stupid in us, okay? So that's why he has to implore us. The other thing is we've spent many years, some of us many, many years, developing deep, wounded ruts, of sinful behavior. You are stuck. This is who you are. This is where you go and this is what you do. And so I can say to you from Solomon's mind, come over here, come over here and walk with the wise. And you go, I don't even know how to spell that. I don't even know where to go to get that because I live right here. This is what I do. I've asked God to take it away. I've asked him to remove it from me. It doesn't go away. So this is, this is what I am. Let, let me give you a reason, the third reason why it's, difficult, and we're going to learn this even from this text today. Let's just be honest. Folly is fun for a season. So we'll, we'll unpack that in just a minute. So one, one last thought too, by the way. This call from Solomon to us to walk wise isn't a one-time decision. This is, this is not like saying to you, as long as you make a decision today walking wise, you're good to go. 
This is not the decision like you think of when you think come to Christ and that's walking in wise, done with the story. No, this is a discussion about daily, moment by moment, walking in wisdom, which, by the way, church, we waffle between folly and wisdom all the time, don't we? Don't we? We go out tomorrow, somebody makes us angry the way they drive, what comes off of our face is folly. What comes out of our mouth could be folly. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying we waffle between the two. So this is a a constant moment by moment ask of the wisdom writer to say, come over here and walk in wisdom. Let me show you how to find wisdom. So let's talk about wisdom first of all. These first six verses, she is described as a very special lady. It is really a kind of a code picture of Jesus, which I love everywhere in the scripture is the salvific story about Christ and how he comes after us. But right here you have, you see the picture of his invitation. You have the picture of his abundant provision for you. Just come over here and I'll take care of you. Whatever you're chasing in your folly, I got you. I'll care for you. And that's the call here. It's interesting to me that the word wisdom really in the original language is a plural use of the word. And it's not, like, it's not like the writer is saying there are many wisdoms, like there's options of wisdom. There's this wisdom and that wisdom. That would fit in our culture, but that's not what he's saying. The plural use of the word is describing a multifaceted wisdom, which helps us experience the beauty and the provision of Jesus in that word because it's like we've used this before about God's salvation. It is the diamond of wisdom. It's one wisdom that has so many sources of help to us. Like it helps me here and it helps me here in my life and my children and my finances and everything. It's a beautiful wisdom, multifaceted picture, all right? It's sort of like the same thing Jesus promised in in John 10. It's that kind of idea when he invites people to come after him, he says, come after me and, and you will have life and life to the abundant version. You'll get this life and it'll have all these facets to life and you'll see joy and You'll see this peace and comfort, and it's wonderful. So it's kind of the compelling nature of the gospel. In fact, every description you have and that we could see even in the study of of Proverbs describes a house that's overflowing with more than enough. Verse 2, in its wonderful poetic language, says that she, wisdom, she, this multifaceted wisdom, has slaughtered a beast and mixed her wine. Some people would look at mixed wine and go, well, that's that's kind of low ball right there. You know, that's like guy has a bottle of wine and he mixes it with another bottle of water and I got twice. That's not what's going on here. Mixed wine with spices added to make it better. So this is God not only providing the good stuff, but making the good stuff even better through wisdom. Make sense? God has given more than enough. And in the, the kind of language that the writer is using here is like, hey, there is a party over here that God's mixing more than enough and abundance for us. Come now. That's, the, that's how it sounds. Come right now to wisdom. Goodness is available right now. Now, I, when I was writing this, I thought of some of us who need to hear that today, like really hear that today. This goodness and this provision isn't for later. It's for right now. S- some of you are holding out for something better, even if something better is victory. And here's what I mean by that. You might be living in one of those trenches we're talking about. I want, I want to be wise, but I can't, I, can't, I can't get out of this trench. And so you're waiting to walk wise until you offer yourself perfected before Jesus. Like you're going to fix it. Like you're going to just go and kind of discipline yourself and sort out your problems and be a, a kind of available and 
somewhat personally perfected and then offer yourself to Christ, say, well, here I am, ready to grow. And it doesn't happen, does it? Some of you have said this out loud. God, I'll get it right, I promise. I'll, I'll clean up my act, I promise. God, I will, I, will, I will get this thing fixed and then I'll come. I'll come to your house as soon as I've sorted all this out. That's not at all what's happening here from the wisdom writer to those who've bumped their head on foolish. You, don't, you and I don't come because we're worthy or we can fix it, ever. We come because he's worthy. And this invitation to come was written in his blood. So you don't have to sort it out. You don't have to make it better. That's the whole point. Self-righteousness can be the reason why you don't walk in wisdom because you're trying so hard to make yourself acceptable. Wisdom's offering, like I said, is more than enough. It's an abundant offering. It satisfies every area of our lives. One of the writers that I read this week kind of went back and scrolled through the first eight chapters before chapter nine, just describing the practical nature of the abundance of Christ in every fashion for his people. Things like chapter one, he preserves us from bad company. Pretty practical, right? Chapter two, he gives us a peaceful conscience. How many couldn't use one of those? That's very practical. Chapter three, he improves us financially. Amen, brother, preach it. We want that. Chapter four, it elevates our status with honor. Chapter five, it satisfies us in the bedroom, practical. In chapter six, it motivates successful accomplishment. Chapter seven, it protects us from temptation. Chapter eight, it opens our eyes to the beauty of creation. And we're only in eight chapters. God has made his point that this multifaceted wisdom really will satisfy you and it's more than enough and it will deal with everything in your life. Come over here and walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. One guy named Ray Orland said it this way, Christ has set a very good table. Love that. It's like my mom's Thanksgiving. That's a good table. More than enough. Verse three is a picture of Christ sending out invitations to come and walk in wisdom. Prophets and apostles who've gone around the world inviting people to come after Christ. Verse four is an invitation for anyone. Look at verse four again. Whoever is simple. <laughs> How many of you in here are simple? Eight o'clock didn't answer very well either, so your hands should go up. I told you the number one prerequisite for salvation is that God saves stupid people. And stupid people is not some kind of put down. It just says, I don't know how to fix this. I can't make it better. And I've perpetrated my own harm and the harm of other people. That's who I am. That's who's coming. I'm a fool. He says, verse four, whoever is simple, what do you do? Turn in here. I love that. Turn in here. We use a, another word a lot around here that's connected to the phrase turn. Repent. Repentance. Repentance is not just turning away from stupid things. It's turning to Jesus. Like if you, if you think you can just leave the foolishness of your life to try to just muster some kind of different version of life, and Jesus isn't the source of that life, you're still a fool. Turn in here means leave, yes, it means pursue Jesus. Make sense? Christ and all that he offers. Turn in here. What's the cost? Verse six, leave your simple ways. It's too easy, isn't it? This is like the worst counseling ever. If you sat down in an office and they just said, stop it, you'd go, well, this doesn't feel very good. 
Let me talk for a little bit. But that's what the writer says. Just leave your, leave your simple ways. It, the phrase actually in the original is kind of stated like this, forsake the foolish, so it includes lots of things other than just the actions that you do. It could be the people that you hang out with. It could be the attitudes that you carry around. Leave your foolish ways. Forsake your foolish ways and turn to a new way, a new family of wisdom. That never gets old to me. People who are really simple, who have nothing to offer God, turn to Jesus and receive super abundant grace in life. That never gets old to me. You mean I, I can't, I can't fix it, and I'm not good. Yep. And what do I do if I come to Jesus? Nothing, just believe. What, what do I get? Everything. <laughs> it just still blows my mind. But here's the truth, and, and nobody likes the but part of any kind of great story like grace, but there is a but to it, and that is in verse 7, it describes this person called a scoffer. This wonderful, unbelievable, super abundant life that Jesus offers is not open to scoffers. It is, uh, it is as if they have no shot. Here's why, um, and you probably know this, um, because correction and critique are wisdom's sharpest tools in helping people to become wise. And scoffers have no room for correction. Not interested in correction. In fact, if you just lose, use verse seven, it, it gets pretty hard on those who try to correct scoffers. The person who corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who approves a wicked man incurs injury. This is personal. Has that happened to you? It happened to me. It happens to me all the time. I tell, you, I tell someone the truth and they say, not only do I reject the truth, I reject you now. I used to like you. I don't like you anymore. I've got more ex-friends than I have friends. And that's just true. Scoffers have no room for correction. And the gospel in its essence is a corrective message. It says to you who you really are as a sinner. And it says, come over here for what you don't have and a scoffer says, mm, I don't need that. It's too restrictive. And you're an idiot. That's how it happens, right? Solomon tells us that correcting a scoffer not only turns him against this truth that we're trying to share, but against the person who shares it, which is the exact opposite of the wise person. Correction for the wise person makes him love the person who brings the correction. Thank you. It also makes him wiser and it makes him more godly according to the text. And I will tell you this word that we really love here. It's the word that God works in his people, this word humility. Humility is the soil where wisdom grows. You can't have it. You can't have wisdom unless you're wanting to walk humble. You, you, can't, you can't have it, which is the exact opposite of the scoffer. The scoffer, he thinks everyone should know what he thinks and see his perspective his opinions, his feelings. Like these are, these are preeminent. These are more important. These are more valuable. What I'm thinking and what I'm feeling, you need to own. And that's what a scoffer does. That's why he can reject and attack the messenger when it's all said and done. But listen, let me give you some rules about correction. I understand it's awkward, but this is, this, these are true statements biblically. Being corrected is a part of becoming godly. Even if you sit under the pulpit, even as if it's a general call like this, you're being corrected. And it's a part of becoming godly. You can't escape that. The other thing, and it's just stating the obvious, that remember, correction involves sinners correcting sinners, which always feels weird. Doesn't it? We'd prefer someone who is free from any sin or tainted motive. 
But it doesn't work that way. Here's how it works. When we're brothers and sisters with each other, and you've got something going on in your life, and it's crashing in on you, guess what I get to do on the outside looking in? I get to see this thing clearer than you do because you're standing there looking at the wall, right? It's my marriage. It's my job. It's my fear. It's my failure. You don't see it. A brother can come along and say, hey, man, I got the picture for you. God's grace is available. Walk in wisdom, right? And we can tell you that, those, those things. But it always feels weird, a sinner with his own issues saying, hey, by the way, let me point out the big giant speck in your eye, right? But it's how it works. It's all we've got. And ultimately, remember this, the correction is always an expression of love. It is so much easier not to say anything. So much easier. Peace at all costs, everyone loves that. But correction, correction is how we grow, and it's a rare quality. Now, let me deal with this, the big question. So how do you grow wise? How does it happen? Verse 10, you should already have highlighted this, circled it, whatever. This is repeated multiple times in our text in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord isn't just a good thing, by the way. It's the only thing. There is no wisdom without fear of the Lord. Just can't have it. Let me answer this question. What is the fear of the Lord? Because to be fair, just reading it sounds a little bit weird. It sounds a little bit dysfunctional. If I read in light of that truth, this statement in 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. What relationship between father and child includes a bucket of fear? I don't want that. I don't want my kids mad at me or afraid of me. Do you? That seems so dysfunctional but we have to understand the word. Here's what fear isn't, okay? Let me just give you a couple thoughts on what it isn't so we can get that out of our mind. This fear of the Lord isn't a fear that isn't real. You know, like your kids, when they're young, they think there's a boogeyman in the closet. You can't help them. They just think that. Well, it's not real. And the reality of it is, is our God is, is uh, somehow people consider he's unpredictable or he's capable of anything, which isn't true. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Our God is very predictable. He's shown himself faithful in the scriptures. So it doesn't include that that's not real part. It doesn't also include a fear of bad intentions. Like somehow God is capable of evil. Like he wants to wreck you or ruin you or destroy you. That's not our God. God is a good God. That's what it says. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He can't help himself. He doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed like we do. He's always good. So it doesn't include that kind of fear. It also doesn't include this fear of the unknown because God has made himself known. Even if you're an unbeliever, Romans says that he's revealed himself by what has been made so that men are without excuse. He's showing off every day in all that's been made. And for those of us who know Christ, Ephesians 1, Paul tells us he made known to us the mystery of his will. God has come close. So it's not like, I don't know, I don't know anything. You do know something. You, know, you can choose to reject it, but you do know. So what does the fear of the Lord mean? Now, I understand that this could have way more, way more pieces and parts to it, but let me just give you a couple of thoughts that came to mind. Fearing God is knowing who he is and knowing who you are. Pretty simple, right? I was watching a little excerpt from a conference with R.C. Sproul answering questions at a Q&A time. And the question that came to him is, is like, if God is so gracious and patient and kind, why the punishment? You ever heard that question before? He almost comes unglued. Now, now R.C.'s pretty old by now, so he has the right to get mad if he wants to. Um, 
But he stopped and he said, let me get this straight. This creature from the dirt, that's how he describes us, questions the infinite holy God. And he basically used that as a platform to say, we're not thinking clearly. If you question anything about God, remember who you are. You were made and shaped by God. He, is, he alone is perfect and holy. He alone is eternal and all-powerful, and you are not. And so if you start this whole thing like, you know, God, you should be more like me, you don't get it. Fear the Lord is understanding who we are and who he is, right? I have hardly an ability to understand me, but clearly no ability to fully understand how great he is. Just start with that premise. I'm not like him at all. Fearing the Lord is knowing the one true God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus. There's only one way. It's through Christ. Christ shows us the justice of God and the mercy of God in one place. God's justice. God won't be toyed with. Sin is going to be punished unto death. Either Jesus dies or we die. It shows itself in Jesus. Fearing the Lord is giving my heart to trust his word alone and being always skeptical, uh, skeptical of my opinions and my feelings which is totally counterintuitive to our culture, by the way. You know that, right? When it comes to truth, as long as I'm feeling or thinking something, it supersedes the truth, always. Well, that can't be true. I feel this way. Oh, I guess we'll go with you. No, fear of the Lord goes, ah, I feel stuff, I think stuff, but I defer, right? That's the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is knowing you are in desperate need of God's grace all the time, and you realize you have no hope without him. Every minute of every day. That's the fear of the Lord. God, I can't, I can't do this right now without you. Fear of the Lord is exchanging what I believe for what is true. Did you hear what I just said? All of us are carrying around with us some false narratives. Now, you probably don't know where they are, otherwise you'd confess them. But there's something in us that's false. Fear of the Lord is always exchanging for what I believe for what is true. He alone is true. Fearing the Lord is a humble, reverent submission to the authority and the person in the words of Jesus. I give up. I tap your king. Fear the Lord. And I know you could add more to that. Verse 10, by the way, is the whole point of the book of Proverbs. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord. Without Jesus as a perfect substitute to absorb God's holy response to my sin, all you have left is God in you, and God in you is a terrifying prospect. Hebrews chapter 10 says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. And falling into the hands of the Lord is standing there without any covering. Without Jesus, your advocate. Without someone speaking a better word over you than you. You standing alone before God, he sees all of it. All of it. And he has already spoken what that means. If you sin, you will. And that's true. But if we trust in Christ, he dies for us. Verse 11, it's this promise of walking in wisdom, walking in Jesus is a, a, a multitude of days, years, life. We know it as everlasting life, right? Verse 12, interesting, as we finish, is a reminder that this decision to love wisdom and fear the Lord is a personal one. If you, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Derek Kidner in his uh, Proverbs study said it this way, I love it. You, you can't borrow someone else's character. You can't hang around the wise and be wise. You can't sit in wise things and be wise. Wisdom is the decision you have to make. It's personal. 
Choose to walk in wisdom. Here's, here's why it's so important. The alternative is deadly. These last six verses talk about folly. Folly is described as a prostitute trying to seduce you. The woman of folly. Just to speculate a little bit of how this folly works. Easy words, soft, kind words, compelling words. Folly treats you the way you want to be treated. Folly treats you in a way that makes you feel good about yourself. Folly makes you the focus of your life. And the contrast between the wisdom that that Solomon is compelling us to follow and to take compared to folly is stark and it's obvious and it's dangerous. Let me just quickly go over the comparisons. If you stretch out those first and last paragraphs, this is what it sounds like. Listen to this. Verse one, wisdom builds her house. In verse 14, folly just sits there seducing people to death. In verse two, wisdom offers meat and wine, which is code for health and happiness. In verse 17, folly offers bread and water, which is code for prison. Wisdom tells the truth, folly lies its face off. Wisdom is life, verse 11, folly is death, verse 18. Anybody, anybody good at comparisons? Like, I'm, not, I'm not super sharp, but one looks better than the other to me. Which is the point of Solomon, this is not hard. This isn't hard at all. Choose wisdom and live. Really live. Not just like tomorrow when you go to heaven. Live right now and experience a conscience-free life like you're totally free with the Lord. Choose wisdom. Now let me just be fair to Folly here for a second, not like she needs any help, but there's one thing she does tell the truth about. Verse 17. Stolen water is sweet. The bread eaten in secret is pleasant. I.e., Sin is fun for a season and then the next day. And then all these crazy things begin to happen to those of us who choose folly even for a moment. Sleepless nights of guilt, fear and insecurities, condemnation that I put on myself, condemnation the devil jumps on and rides right down to my heart and says, you're not his. There's no way you can be his. There's no way anybody who calls himself a Christian would do what you just did or continue to do what you do. Anybody ever been there? Two of us have. There's this flesh we drag around. This thing yet not dead. Spirit of God lives in me. Soul's been transformed. I'm a new man, a new creature in Christ. Yes, 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 and amen. But this flesh wars with the spirit. And sometimes, maybe you experience this too, I waffle between folly and wisdom. And I do stupid things. Things I regret. And then the attacks begin. So what do you do then? What do you do when you make the choice for folly? This is going to sound really simple, but I want you to listen very carefully. Okay, if, if I at all expressed your experience, here's, here's what I want you to do. Listen. Believe the gospel. Fight for the gospel. It is as true the day you came to Christ as the worst day of your folly. The all-consuming grace of God for those who confess Jesus. It's true. Confess it. Repent of the choice of folly. Yes, leave it behind. Fan the affections of Christ. Do that. But don't for one second let the universe's greatest liar tell you that God has changed his mind about grace. 
Don't for one second have the attacks somehow suggest to you that God's, oh, this isn't working out. They're not, all, not at all like I want them to be. Push back with the gospel. Ray Ortland said this. Do you have a taste for sin? Vulgarity and folly? We all do. By the way, Ray's a pastor. We all know what it looks like, what it's like to be stuck down there in the abyss of self where we cannot even choose Christ. What do we do then? How can we choose him as a passion of our lives when we are passionate for lesser things, even wrong things? How can we jump out of a hole that has no bottom? There's only one way. There's only one way to hear the gospel again. Jesus Christ loves you. Not the rehabilitated you, but the real you, the real you down in the abyss. And he welcomes you to himself. That's the gospel. Do you remember what God said over his son when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the exact same thing he says over you. What sin? Jesus took the consequence. This is my son. The text tells us that he has adopted us as his sons and daughters and he is not ashamed of us as his sons and daughters. Believe the gospel and fight for that gospel and walk in wisdom, amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, I do pray for us, um, a people who really do love you but stagger from time to time over into the area of folly. We make stupid decisions, stupid choices, thinking for that moment that they will satisfy only to have it rip our hearts out. God, we confess it as stupidity. We confess Christ alone and no other. God created us a fear of the Lord so much so that we experience the abundance of wisdom, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.